you are listening to another episode of H-Hour. You can get H-Hour merchandise at shop.charliecharlie1.com and you can become a patron of H-Hour at patreon.com forward slash hkpodcasts. In the meantime, enjoy this episode. Ron, Tara Austin, welcome. Welcome to the Alternative Studio, mm-hmm. full of pretend weapons and uh, boys' toys. Thank you for your time. Glad we could rearrange it after the last time. Mm-hmm. Hectic diaries. Very busy. And uh, like I said on the on the icebreaker, excited to be talking to you. <clears throat> so apart from, we're going to come on to the, the topic of psilocybin and uh, psychedelic mm-hmm. psychedelics use in medicine and research. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was listening to another podcast of yours previously. Uh-oh. You gave a little bio. Behavioural scientist. Behavioral science. Applied behavioral science. Behavioral yeah. So what science. is so what describe that to me? So I hear yeah. the word applied in different different fields. What does applied mean in on behavioral mm. science? Because it concerns me a little bit. I feel like you could persuade me or people to do whatever you want them to do because you <laughs> understand the I mind wish. that well. <laughs> well, I try I do try, I do try to <laughs> manipulate my way around the world. Um a, applied behavioral scientist in I'm not an academic. Um, and I, I've actually never studied psychology. I'm the only one in my team, apart from my boss, that I never studied it at university. Um, <coughs> when I was studying behavioural science, degrees didn't exist, and now they are teaching about the work that we've been doing over the last um, 11 years. Um, so I'm a partner in a behavioural science practice, in which is housed within a big ad agency. And that makes a lot of sense because you know, advertising agencies are trying to influence people. Uh, that's what they're that's what they're doing and behavioral science practice was really set up to do that to influence people but without necessarily using posters or 60 second tv ads and my boss is very fond of saying uh you know if you want an ad campaign you go to an ad agency if you want a pr campaign you go to a pr agency and you kind of come to us when you want to change people's behavior in some way you want them to do something but you don't necessarily know how or why or what the right uh path might be and we are very much sort of media agnostic in how we approach a problem the answer might be changing a process uh, or um, yeah something relatively uh, trivial or minor that actually could end up shifting people's behavior quite significantly um, so that's uh, I'm a consultant really now is what you'd call me Can I ask a question mm-hmm. where, that's what we're here for where does the, <laughs> where does the line set between influence and manipulation yeah that's a good question and the answer is that we're all trying to influence one another all of the time and whether that's (coughs) and a lot of the training I do um I start off by telling people this is not training this is more like therapy because you're gonna hopefully by the end of it understand yourself a lot better and when you understand yourself a lot better, you can also understand those around you and how you might want to influence them, whether they are your partner or your children or your colleagues or your customers. And obviously the work that we do for the private sector is in great part about helping people, you know, helping businesses get someone to click on a particular link or to get them to 
follow through and um, sign up to this bank uh, because you've all, we've all been through processes where we've got, oh God, this is, this is a pain in the ass. I'm not going to finish this process. And we do a lot of work kind of optimizing those sign up processes, things like that. Or, um, you know, how, how do I get these people to take up direct debit? How do I get them to do these things I want them to do because they're good for my business or they're good for my um, organization? We do a lot of work in the public sector as well. Um, uh, but yeah, this uh, it, the line is, I think, what your aims are. That's what it's always been for me. So what is the end? Uh, if the end is bad, if you, if you want them to smoke or you want them to be fat or you want them to, you know, uh, something terrible, um, kill one another, maybe. I'm surrounded by guns right now. But um, if you want them to do something bad, then no matter what you, you do, you know, the, the means are are in service of something evil. And what we do is try and understand those means as well as possible. And we do not work for gambling companies and we do not work for tobacco companies. I have worked extensively on vaping, um, on getting people to switch from cigarettes to vaping. Now, some of my colleagues won't do that. They don't want to work uh, for businesses that have anything to do with nicotine. Nicotine is a highly addictive substance. My own view is that the end is absolutely noble and that everything I know about harm reduction and, and drug policy is that vaping won't <coughs> kill you, whereas cigarettes absolutely will. And I don't have a problem with somebody having an addiction to nicotine if it's not going to kill them. I really do have a problem with it if it is. And so um, I've worked, like I say, extensively on, on getting people to shift uh, to vaping from cigarettes and I've done that for vaping companies and I've also done that for Cancer Research UK who have the same end and the same goal so wh whether or not it's wrong I mean there are there are frameworks that you can use to look at the ethics of um, any kind of uh, yeah strategy to influence people you want people to maintain their agency I think is for me the biggest area you want you want things to 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 some extent be a choice that they would would want to make but at the same time you know human beings we've got too many choices and we've got too much uh, like uh, the world is overwhelming and if I can help someone make a decision without even really thinking about it that's going to be better for their life and the lives of those around them then I, I do believe in that kind of slightly uh, what they call it paternal uh, liberalism in that you know the, there are some decisions that can be made for others like like the de, like changing the defaults this is the classic example changing the defaults for the organ donation <coughs> system so that instead of asking people to opt into organ donation you ask them to opt out now you could argue you know that maybe they you know that that switching it around that, that that there's some problem in doing that but organ donation rates go through the roof and the, the decision is still absolutely objectively the same. Do you want to be a donator, or a, a donor, or not? Um, and so, you know, that choice is still there. You still have the free agency to opt out of the system. You can still say, "I don't want my organs donated," but the great majority of people will not do that. So, instead of having twenty percent donation and eighty percent not doing it, when you make it the other way around, so that you have to opt out, eighty percent of people will donate by by virtue of the fact that they cannot be bothered to opt out. Now, in in our industry, we talk a lot about nudge thinking and nudge nudging people's behaviour, but the other side of that is is sludge. 
is where you might create a system in which you for example you don't want people to cancel their gym membership and therefore you're going to make it really difficult you're going to make the process really hard oh you've got to phone up this number that's only open at these times of day in order to do this you can you can put more friction into the system now that we'd call sludge and I'd say that there the ends are bad they're not the right ones they're not pro-social and I, I like to think that the work that I do and that we all do is you know lending itself to to good businesses and 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 good briefs from the government and other NGOs and things like that where we're trying to serve people in the way that they want to be served and that the ends are good is there a major difference in between how easily influenced and I'm generalizing obviously men are to women and women are to men not to my knowledge no i mean one of the there's some really interesting data about things like people who think that they're not influenced by the behavior of others uh, you know, in the academic research, they, they they are, and they are actually influenced slightly more. So, <laughs> so there's some, but men and women, I don't, I haven't seen that data. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you, but there's probably some research out there. <coughs> and this is the thing. So the applied behavioral, you know, behavioral <coughs> scientists, we're really, what we're doing is leaning on the academic data and look and reading and staying as on top of the academic research as we can in order to then apply that to real world problems and um, there's a lot of testing that we have to do to work out what is the right strategy we can say these different um, these different strategies might work based on the academic data and then we try and test and learn uh, from that and sometimes we test and realize that something we've suggested um, absolutely doesn't work or it backfires uh, and that is the nature of the human species is we're just so wonderfully varied and uh, contextual and every little detail matters and sometimes we sometimes you get it wrong but you can also learn in in that process I think we did a piece of work we're in Westminster right now and we did a piece of work for Westminster Council where um, we looked at how to get uh, council taxpayers to sign up to direct debit it's better for the council arguably it's better for the, the individual as well um, and uh you know, in that process, we, we tested different, I think we were testing different leaflets and different communications and different strategies. And, and But we also tested against a control uh, in which we were using maybe the existing uh, leaflet that they'd, they'd used and a control cell in which we had no one being leafleted. And what we found was that there was no significant difference between the people who got the leaflets and the people who's, who didn't get any leaflet at all. And, um, and that's sort of devastating for you as a behavioural science practitioner because you like to think, oh, I've created these leaflets that are going to really influence people and want, get them to want to sign up for direct debit. But the, the circumstances didn't allow for that. What we learned was that Westminster Council shouldn't waste any money on leaflets. Uh, actually, the, the, the whole um, getting people to sign up to direct debit, there were other things that they could do in that process that weren't about consciously persuading people. Did the, um, did the pandemic... Uh like advance or accelerate the advancement of anything in behavioral science or 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 provide an, an abundance of behavioral science data or mass which led to any breakthroughs or not i don't think i've seen anything of it but i, I mean I'm not almost sure. certainly yeah because it must have been beneficial from a research perspective yeah and there was a there was a lot of research at the time about mask wearing that was because there was 
you know, the whole behavioural science world was really looking at how do we get people to wear masks? How do we get people to wash their hands? These really interesting <coughs> behavioural challenges. I mean, I was, I was shocked. <laughs> I was really shocked that it took the government six months to come up with hands, face, space. Because I think the thing you would have done on day one in number 10, if I were there, would have been there would have been some mnemonic, some kind of uh, simple, um, very, very simple set of ideally rhyming, uh, you know, bits of language that could have conveyed to people what they should or shouldn't do. Um, and it was, it was well, I mean, it was into the August, September by the time that they actually launched uh, that piece of communication, which was which was pretty shocking. The other thing I found the most shocking was when the whole country was leafleted with a. Um, I th- I've still got it somewhere. I've kept it as a as a signifier of what not to do. But uh, uh, there was a leaflet that went through everybody's door that showed them uh, if somebody in your household gets sick, you know how long should you basically quarantine for? And what they did was show um, time passing within this leaflet, uh, from top to bottom. So instead of showing time progressing from left to right, so the man gets sick and then he's quarantining for a certain amount of time and then there was an overlap with next person kind of is contaminated, gets sick and and then they have to uh, quarantine for a certain amount of time. And this was like the only piece of direct mail I think went to every household in the whole country and it showed time in the vertical, not uh, laterally, not across the page. And people don't make sense of time up and down. They make sense of it from left to right. Um, And I just couldn't believe that they had designed this leaflet so poorly that, I mean, I just can't believe that anybody who had any basic understanding of human nature or comprehension would have understood that that was a good leaflet but the 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 problem is that you know we're all using our very rational decision making processes in business and the great opportunity i have in the work that i do is to come into a business and go oh yes you've been treating your consumers like they're rational agents and they're not bye-bye like they're, they're not at all um they are actually human beings with all of these quirky weird algorithms of the mind that have been determined by evolution um, m- much more so than by you know the circumstances of the last few years um and we try and sort of tap into that really basic understanding but a lot of the time it's just kind of breaking through the kind of boardroom bullshit and and the biases that we have in our own businesses that you know we we it's easy for us to talk about the rational stuff it's much much harder for people to talk about the things that just feel wrong um because they can't quite put their finger on what it is that feels wrong um and therefore it just goes unsaid and so we get we get to say it which is fun Mm. the uh the pandemic brought a in my mind the term well the word nudge from Mm. a from a marketing perspective behavioral science perspective got a got a stigma attached to it Mm, on the back of the pandemic because of the what was known as the nudge unit within the government yeah yeah and um i I think yeah i was thinking the same as you it's got a bad rap but actually it's just it's completely not it's a completely normal part of any 
organization mm-hmm. trying to do anything except it's a formal unit trying to work out how to influence people and, and achieve but they things. shouldn't be setting the ends they shouldn't be setting the goals that was the interesting thing is there should have been strategic leadership uh, that determined this is the right end, this is the right goal. And then I would argue behavioural science can really lend itself to then, okay, how do we achieve that? What is the right um, What is the right path for doing that? And and sadly, a, a lot of the decisions that were made were, were not made based on really well, so rigorous data. So the nudge unit was creating the goals as well as the means to achieve them? There was a lot of influence, I think, um, from a number of behavioural scientists, whether they were part of SAGE <laughs> at the time, because um, it's gone, it's private now, isn't it? That, yeah, that, it's, that group it's of people spun left. Out. Now it's private, yeah, isn't it? it's spun out. Um, I think it's, I think it's partly state owned. I'm actually not sure, but oh, really? um, but certainly the, it, there are. It's it's definitely not entirely uh, government run anymore, um, as it used to be. Behavioral insights team, they're called. But yeah, that's what everyone calls them, the, the nudge unit. And I don't think it was necessarily them, but there were other, um, you know, leading behavioral science kind of uh, uh, voices um, that were part of SAGE and part of the teams that were developing like this the strategy and um, I think that they were you know my understanding is that they were very they were far too um, conservative really about what they thought people would would do in the pandemic they didn't think that people would quarantine they didn't they thought there would be fatigue much earlier than there actually was um and they sort of they got it wrong really um they just they just got it wrong based on their experience of um human nature in a circumstance that was completely outside of the pandemic why do you think people were so cooperative with it going on for so long i think fear is a really powerful driver of behavior and i think people were genuinely afraid and then there was a, a huge amount of social pressure uh, that came along with that um there's something in the behavioral sciences at the moment that they're talking about a kind of heterogeneity <coughs> revolution and this is looking at the I- idea that we're not you know we're not one species <laughs> we are but we're not one set of uh behaviors we as a species are very very <coughs> very varied and that we should be using instead of looking at kind of mean averages for example, we really should be looking at kind of histograms and the way that we depict societal data means that we should be looking at the whole spectrum of uh, behaviour, belief. Um, we do a lot of work around personality profiling, trying to understand different cohorts of people. We've done a lot of work in the United States around vaccine hesitancy and how to encourage people to take the vaccine um, and in that instance, you're not. You, you might pick one message that works on average better than the others for the largest group of people, but that doesn't mean to say that you're going to pick up everyone. And the way that you need to target the whole population to get everybody to sort of sign up might be very, very different. And we're we're looking. We've done a lot of work, as I say, sort of profiling different audience groups, uh, different ethnicities, different uh, religious groups, trying to understand uh, their motivators. What is it that, what is the message that will influence them rather than just the best message overall? And I think there's, um, I think, I actually, one of the things that terrifies me is, um, and this again comes down to having the right ends, is the opportunity for AI to now power um, mass 
micro communications that are really pushing your individual buttons um, rather than just one big mass campaign, like something that is very much targeted around what it knows about you and therefore what might best influence you. Um, and I want to be do- using that same technology when it's for the right reasons, um, when it's for the things that we believe in. But um, I'm terrified of of what Russia and and the rest will be able to do, particularly come the next elections. Well, I assume it'll mean that that whoever's deploying it f- from an influence perspective will be able to be, to your point, much more. They're targeting get much more specific. Yeah. So at the moment, instead of targeting, you know, let's think let's think you're a political party mm. instead of targeting. I don't know. We're going to target. Labour voters in the north mm. and try and convert them. So let's look at the Labour voters or who may or which demographics might be. Yes. Blah, blah, blah. You can go even more granular than that because yeah. you've got that AI power to not to yeah. one be able to identify the targets and two be able to identify to work the right out message for them. The yeah. message for them and yeah. deploy the message and deploy yeah. the message. One of the things that um, so I read Dom Cummings does an article yes. every month. Uh, I don't know if you've. Yes. read any of his stuff and Substack stuff yeah have you ever read any of his stuff some of it I've okay. got a uh, he's actually bizarrely the reason I'm here actually no way there's a Go very on. I mean there's a, I don't know how to t- to say this without sounding like a complete arse but um but basically <laughs> Dominic spoke at the conference that I run uh in 2017 um and it was it was very it was a it was a it was a great presentation it was before the Cambridge Analytica stuff all came out and he was talking about how he used psychology and how he had this you know team of physicists and and data scientists uh kind of crack (coughs) communications for um for the uh, leave campaign uh, and he actually said, in, you know, he was, he was in a room full of advertising people saying, look, ad, ad agencies, it's all snake oil. And these guys just come and try and tell you what the right thing is based on what they think. But actually, I had the data and I, I knew what. And so he was really doing much more of that specialist kind of targeting uh, way back then. Um, and yeah, he spoke at our conference and then cut to 2020 and the pandemic is like in full swing and and I was looking at uh my options at the time and they'd and he'd set up the 10 data science unit or he was trying to in government and um which got dismissed by uh yeah the um, Johnsons yeah uh, uh, and I really believe in evidence-based government <coughs> I really really believe that we should be doing things based on what's working in other countries and what is the evidence base and what does yeah what's the academic like testing and learning and that that process the science I believe in the scientific process as he does and um yeah and he asked me to come into number 10 uh, and I, I don't know him at all but um uh I I just knew him through my boss from and from hosting the conference and he I but I'd written an application for the 10 data science unit which he'd seen and then he asked me to come in and uh and then he asked me uh, if I would consider being the prime minister's spokesperson. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Which was, without a doubt, what, probably the craziest day of my life. I mean, it was in what a the, compliment in the cabinet room of number ten. And but it gets weirder because in that meeting, uh, I thought 
God, you know, I actually, I, I sort of agreed to go and work for him. I said no to being out <coughs> in front of all the cameras and things, and I, I wasn't going to fall on Boris Johnson's sword anytime. But I did really. It was the pandemic. I thought maybe you know my country needs me, all that sort of stuff. People were dying because the communications were so bad, and 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 I just thought, yeah, okay, I'll come and uh, help out. And um, and I, I was looking, I was going to go back in and have another um, meeting with them. And then he was out, of course. But but when I was there in the room, um, I still can't believe I did this in some ways. Um, (laughs) I said to him, look, how much do you know about psychedelic medicine? And and he said, go on, not much. Um, And we had quite a long conversation about psychedelic medicine in the cabinet room. Uh, because I said, because I, because I thought to myself, do you know what? This is ridiculous. This scenario that you're in right now is crazy, like in the heart of power. And you might never have this opportunity again. Who knows what can happen? Um, you, if, if nothing else, and he's probably going to dismiss this and think you're an absolute nut job, but at least you, you know, I just felt in my heart that I had to say it. And I really, really believe in evidence-based government. And I really, really believe that the next great age of mankind will be shaped by psychedelic medicine. Um, and, really? I, and I'm okay. so sad that everyone is so sad and depressed and apocalyptic about the future of the human race and our planet. Um, because I really do believe that we, we desperately need to hope and, and believe in a, in a better future than, than the one that we, we currently sort of have presented to us. And I, I said to him, look, I know that you think that the, uh, that the next great innovation will be another sort of technological innovation. I knew he looked to the US, to DARPA, to these organizations that had, had built these amazing technologies and that had shaped the world, the internet, these kinds of things. Um, and I, I said, but I tell you, the next great innovation is not going to be something that you hold in your hand, like your phone. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be inside you and it's going to shape the world as much as the pill and vaccination and all these other things, these amazing technologies, innovations that we don't hold in our hand and we forget all about because they're organic or they're within us. These kind of medical interventions that actually have had a dramatically profound impact on society. The pill alone has fundamentally changed everything about our world in some ways and liberated uh women from from childbirth and from you know it's these very very profound social changes but they're not this kind of yeah they're they're not just something that you you see and you look at every day um and and i said to him then the thing about these these uh medicines uh psychedelic medicine is that whilst we have all this data around things like mental health treatment and um and yeah and depression and anxiety and ptsd and addictions and all of these things i said the real impact is is not just that it's how this ripples out into just about every aspect of our world because we've got the the cost of the healthcare service not just for mental health but also for lung cancer driven by tobacco addiction for cirrhosis driven by alcohol addiction we've got domestic violence driven by 
people who are traumatized i would uh, i would strongly argue i think a third of all theft is driven by um drug addiction alone this show is brought to you by rugby for heroes Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation formed in 2009 in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whittaker, who was sadly killed serving on operations with the Parachute Regiment in Afghanistan. Since Joe's death, Rugby for Heroes have raised in excess of £125,000 for military charities. And they've been doing this year in, year out, by organising fundraising events themed around rugby, beer and gin food, live music, and great people. They regularly hold events, and you can expect soon for a supper club to be added to their calendar. Their most recent event was a beer and gin festival held in Old Leventonians RFC and Leventon Spa, the home of Rugby for Heroes, and a club who recognise, as many others do, the huge impact that Rugby for Heroes has, not only on the military community, but also on the local community. You can keep up to date with what Rugby for Heroes are doing by following them on social media, at Rugby number four heroes, Rugby for Heroes, and getting onto their website, rugbyforheroes.org. I strongly suggest you do get to their events, and I will see you at the next event. I've been to every single one of their events since I I discovered Rugby for Heroes and, quite frankly, since they supported me through very difficult times. So I hold them very close to my heart and I'm very appreciative of their support, as are many other HR fans who have been touched in different ways by Rugby for Heroes over the years. Rugbyforheroes.org Again, I've never met a drug addict who isn't a traumatized person. You know, there's a lot that we can do to to treat those addictions uh, as a as a mental health challenge. And that if we can resolve them, and if we do have a medicine that can begin to heal some of these individual problems, <clears throat> the ripple effect outwards to wider society is is profound and it and it very much affects the the cost of everything how many police do we need on our streets if we've got a population who are just a hell of a lot happier um you know and we had a long conversation about it and afterwards um he connected me to some of the policy advisors in number 10 who were also interested in this area and then when he was gone and he he was sort of out of number 10 um, and I wasn't, I wasn't going to go and work for him anymore. <laughs> Fortunately, Ogilvy called me back up. Um, when that happened, I, I thought, well, hang on. I'm, the, the, the vote happened in Oregon at the time. Um, so everyone was talking about Trump and Biden and the big, ref, the big vote. But there was a referendum in Oregon, vote 109, ballot 109, uh, where they were looking at, uh, should we set up a statewide taxed kind of healthcare system dedicated to the use of psilocybin in Oregon and the ballot passed and this was huge news in the in the psychedelic community and so when that happened in November 2020 I, I emailed everybody who was on this email trail that that Dominic had put me onto and um, I think Manira Mirza was on there and all of the Boris's policy chief you know it's big names and I just sort of said hello here I am and I'm going to tell you about what's happening in Oregon have you paid attention and I tried to play a lot of ego cards around are we really going to let the <laughs> Americans you know use all this amazing insight that's come from Imperial College London and you know and um you know I basically said are we doing anything about this and one of the policy advisors got back to me and I, I ended up chairing a meeting between number 10 and 
and Professor David Nutt and, and Dr. Robin Carter-Harris, uh, who were at Imperial at the, at the time, Robin was at Imperial, um, who you know, are world-leading experts on, um, on psilocybin and, and other psychedelic medicines. And the policy advisor I spoke to was a, a neuroscience grad, really <laughs> loved this. I just wanted to get the scientists in front of them uh, screw everything else like the the chat is just, just understand what the science is saying and um and through that process I met Crispin Blunt who was running the conservative drug policy reform group and I ended up uh working for them as a volunteer sort of volunteer lobbyist going up to party conference and printing materials and writing presentations and trying to get people to consider that psilocybin might be a very powerful medicine for us and that it needed, uh, the scientists needed more access to it. Um, so really, and, that, and that's brought me to running this campaign now, the PAR campaign for psilocybin access rights, but really it's all probably thanks to Dominic Cummings <laughs> and that one weird day of my life uh, where I sort of kind of got offered a job that I didn't want, really? but it led to something entirely different and the universe had other plans for me i did not see the dc tangent coming out <laughs> so why but that's a nice segue into um into the psychedelics and psilocybin then so why why the focus from, on psilocybin from your end uh, as, and not so much on that's other things like ayahuasca question. and yes dmt yeah, and um, <laughs> amphetamines and well, amphetamines are different, but yeah, oh, of certainly. Is different. So, yeah, yeah sorry, so yeah. If, um, within the psychedelic world, there are there's a whole bunch of different uh, psychedelic medicines, of which yeah, ayahuasca. It, um, ayahuasca was actually my introduction to psychedelic medicine. Ayahuasca was the first psychedelic medicine that I ever accessed personally. Uh, so I have a great, great, very, very deep love uh, for ayahuasca. But um, why psilocybin is um, <coughs> sounds like a medicine. <laughs> begins with a <laughs> begins with a P. Sounds like an S. Um, it sounds like a medicine. It is the psychoactive compound in magic mushrooms, which sound less like medicine, but also have uh, you know some positive um, connotations in that mushrooms are mushrooms. They grow out of the ground and they <coughs> are. Um, you know, uh, naturally found throughout throughout our country. This is a native um, uh, compound, uh, and it grows wild every autumn. Um, so there's a that that was a very that was part of it. Um, primarily, I think we we wanted to look at psilocybin because it had the most research. So we we being who we being uh, well, the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group. Um, which is not a conservative affiliated organization, but Crispin Blunt is a conservative MP. He's set it up. Uh, we have other MPs uh, who are part of the group um, from the Labour benches, from the Greens, from the how SNP. Was, how was he able to- he, I was able to include, include conservative in the name if it's not conservative affiliate. Yeah, they can't, well, you can't be popular. The, par- with that the party don't like that at all. No, no they really say. don't. But um, it's uh, it's not conservative affiliated. It's basically I, I I say to people it's a bit like saying we're not calling ourselves the progressive <coughs> radical drug policy reform group. We are, it is small C. We're not asking for very much in terms of, we're asking for the, for the government to follow oh. the evidence base. Okay. Now it's very possible that there might be 
a rebrand on the horizon considering the change of government, for example. It wouldn't be expedient to be called the Conservative Drug Policy I assumed it was party-affiliated. I didn't no, realise yeah. it was a small C. Okay. No, and actually, so Charlotte Nichols um, is a Labour MP who's been really, really vocal advocate. Um, she spoke so eloquently at the backbench business debate uh, in May that the, the CDPRG um, you know, helped kind of facilitate... Um, and yeah, so we've got a lot of Labour members, and and yeah, the naming the naming is probably falling out of step now uh, with what we need. Um, but yeah, it was the it was the CDPRG that um, that I kind of joined, and then we spun PAR out of that, and PAR the campaign for psilocybin access rights, psilocybin beginning with a P, but sounding like an S, which uh, it was again, and it was a conscious decision to give ourselves like a little uh, moniker, a name that meant that people didn't actually have to say the word psilocybin even when they're, when they're talking about us because it's really awkward. And even if you know how to say it, people say it differently on different sides of the Atlantic, psilocybin, psilocybin. There's no really right or wrong way, uh, but it's definitely a barrier. The, the, the reason for psilocybin, there is more evidence. There is uh, more evidence uh, available to us, more modern evidence than pretty much, than, than any other psychedelic on the table. Um, so the wealth of evidence for psilocybin specifically is really high. MDMA, which is not strictly a classic psychedelic, um, but there are there is a wealth of data available, particularly in the United States, and an organisation called MAPS, who are a spearheading and and will they will get FDA approval for MDMA before psilocybin. But certainly in this country, uh, there is a wealth of data around psilocybin and it has versus something like LSD by far the best clinical um, opportunity in that a, a dosing experience, a macro dose, a high dose psilocybin experience of the kind that you get in the clinical trials lasts between four and six hours reliably, absolutely reliably so. My understanding is that it wouldn't even matter how much psilocybin I gave you, even if I gave you a huge amount of psilocybin, it would still metabolize out of your body within that time frame. Now, the difference with something like LSD is that, um, as I understand it, the molecule is a lot sort of stickier. It it really attaches very tightly um, to those the <coughs> neurotransmitters in the brain, if that's the right phrasing. And whereas psilocybin will metabolize away within that four to six hour time period, LSD will still stick a bit tighter and therefore it might take nine hours 12 hours 24 hours and the more that you put into the system the more likely you are to have some rogue elements that really won't metabolize out for really significant amounts of time and that means in in the clinical studies it's just not as practicable that said i do believe that treatment for alcoholism in the future my personal belief is that alcoholism and um some other addictions uh, to psychoactive substances um, that the LSD might end up being the the preferred treatment. It might end up being more effective. Um, I don't think we have that data yet, but certainly, you know, when they first started using LSD to treat alcoholism back in the 1950s, um, you know, it was, it was, you know, really very effective. I think something like 40% of, um, uh, of uh, participants in the clinical trials back in the 50s actually uh, quit drinking or significantly reduced their alcohol uh, intake 
um, following treatment with LSD. And I mean, you might think 40% is not that high. 40% is astonishing. Huge. I think I think AA gets somewhere somewhere under under 10%, certainly. I mean, the, 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 in terms of the potential treatment, the benefits of, of you know, psilocybin and other psychedelics to treat ill health, should we say, or ailments, mm-hmm. I'm almost more excited by the, the prospect of treating the addictions mm-hmm. than the mental mental health aspects I think because they all go together you can't you can't tie them really no no I know you can't <laughs> but, I know, but I know you can't but I I feel like the addictions are more identifiable oh yeah they're easy to spot they're so you can go bang and treat that and then quite often that'll reduce in my non-experienced professional will reduce the likelihood mm. of um, a worsening mental health situation whatever it may be whatever it may be uh, or or the advent of one if it hasn't occurred already um, but but coming back a sec what led you to your, your first psychedelic experience then which was a very brief it, period if you don't mind me asking yeah a very brief period of depression i say that because i was really <coughs> lucky you know i'd always been a very very jolly person and it wasn't until i got to that kind of classic i think i was about 29 30 and I think in your late 20s, early 30s, that's when people start to recognize patterns in their life and they start, there's a discontent um, that can set in. And in, in my own case, I, I left uh, a, a boyfriend. Uh, I, I left him and it was, that was the trigger for me to actually deal with uh, feelings that I had not visited uh, since I was a child, about when my, uh, you know, my, my own, um, my my mother had kind of sort of like, uh, what's the right word? Sort of kidnapped us, me and my sisters, and um, she she she'd gone through a breakdown. She'd had a breakdown when I was a child, and so she'd taken us away. Uh, and I didn't know this as a child. I thought my dad was in America because um, he used to go to America quite frequently, and then I basically found out that. Uh, he hadn't been in America, he'd been in our house and we'd, we'd been off somewhere else. And I, as a sort of seven-year-old child, I blamed myself for abandoning my father, which is utterly ridiculous. But I now understand, you know, what happened to me in that period and how I felt, you know, that I should have been there somehow, that I should, I left him alone and then in this, when I was, you didn't of, know he was there, right? No, I didn't know he was there. Did your mother was my leave mo- no, mother yeah, my mother him. had taken us away, and and we didn't know that he was at home, and I didn't sort of question it, you know, as a child, um, and yeah, and this feeling that I had somehow abandoned him and left him alone uh, in our in our house, not knowing where we were, was absolutely devastating for me. And I mean, I I couldn't even talk about that my entire you know, young adult life without probably wanting to cry. It's a, it was a massively traumatic experience. Fortunately, my sisters didn't didn't seem to be as traumatised as I was. But this is the thing about being the eldest and sort of knowing a bit more about what's going on. And, um, and it wasn't until I was sort of 29, 30 that leaving uh, my ex-boyfriend triggered in me this depression. Um, and I basically felt like the world's worst person. I felt so incredibly guilty. I, I still felt guilty from leaving my, my ex-boyfriend before that. I'd had another boyfriend before that. I'd left him. And there was this crushing amount of guilt. And it was linked back to... And ultimately, it was all linked back to, wow. you know, these sort of 
uh, very early experiences of the world and these early patterns of thought. And um, and fortunately for me, in my ayahuasca experience, I was able to learn that really all that was really going on was that my ego wanted me to be a good person. And if you if you sort of leave someone and you and you hurt them in some way or you abandon them, this is kind of grand language. Actually, all it really was was my ego being very self-important. And um, and I wanted to I, I was feeling this guilt and this depression really because I wanted to be a good person. And if you hurt someone, you should feel bad about it. Right. But that thought had got so out of control that it was sort of not killing me, but it was really, it robbed the joy from my life. I didn't feel that I ought to be happy because I'd hurt this, these other people um, by withdrawing myself. And the ayahuasca told me, I am a good person. I don't have to prove it to anyone. How did you, how did that lesson present itself? To you? In how my experience, I, I don't actually have very visual um people always talk about psychedelics as hallucinatory not everybody hallucinates not all the time i have very very physical experiences and um in my case i talked to myself and i told myself what was going on and the words were coming out of my my mouth and i was listening to them and so um you were actually talking i was actually talking but it if for me the ayahuasca experience allowed me to separate um my ego and the person called Tara Austin and her life story from my what Eckhart Tolle calls my your being um and my my connectivity to the whole universe in and um my 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 body if you like was sort of representing that side of things and my body was telling me what I needed to hear and I said the words out loud that I needed to hear um that you know that actually yeah, I was I was a good person. I didn't need to feel guilty about any of this stuff because I didn't try and hurt anyone, and uh, it wasn't none of it was my kind of fault. Um, and and importantly, that all these other people that you know I'd I'd left, they were on their own journey. They had their own life to live, and um, all I was really trying to do was uh, somehow manage them or deny their feelings, take responsibility for their feelings. Well, it wasn't mine to take. They're, they're on their own journey. Again, it's sort of self-important, weird ego stuff that when my ego had quietened down, I'd realised, uh, yeah, that it really wasn't about me. And I I just, uh, all I needed to do was bring as much joy as possible into the world, um, my own and other people's. And um, I didn't have anything to apologize for or feel guilty about or feel depressed about. In fact, the universe was the most wonderful gift. Uh, life was the most amazing gift. And I was able to see that clearly when I'd kind of put, yeah, put my ego mind down and the story I was telling myself about uh, who I was and what I'd done by leaving these, uh, these men um, really all just tracked back to some very distorted view of of reality that stemmed from childhood and you know and since then I've been able to see that same that same story play out in the um the hundreds of people that I've seen that have gone through psychedelic experiences uh invariably in the state discover that something that they had 
thought or felt um, at a very, very early age uh, was actually not really true or maladaptive or not quite helpful. Um, I sometimes describe it to people as like, even even people who are living (coughs) sort of really, uh, you know, potentially sort of relatively happy, maybe not happy lives, but, uh, you know, they might not even consider themselves to be sort of depressed, for example. Um, But I I think of it a little bit like if if your house is beautiful, but it stinks, you're not going to bring people over. Or if you do, it's not, it's not the experience anyone wants. Um, and I think by around late 20s, 30s, that's when you start to realise, oh, hang on a minute, my house stinks. <laughs> and it's all because there's something in the basement and it's locked away down there. And psychedelics, I mean, there's lots of different ways you can go and clean that basement, but psychedelics will give you the key to the door. Like they will allow you to unlock the door and it's dark and it can be quite frightening and scary and you need somebody, a, a guide, a, a trip sitter, as they describe it, um, who will stand at the top of the staircase and keep the door open and and tell you you can do this and reassure you as you go down into that basement and you go, okay, what's down here? What is it that's in my house? What is it that's in my own mind? What associations, what concepts, what thinking, what experiences are in here that are actually causing me problems now? And invariably if you've got that right set and setting as we talk about in psychedelic therapy you know you've got somebody there with you uh, who can help guide that experience and and make you feel completely trusting and that you can do this you can go down into the basement and you can find that crappy old thing that is stinking out the place and you can switch the light on and 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 really there is an illumination that that allows your own psychology to come into perspective and give you that perspective and then you can throw out the junk and there is the most extraordinary liberation uh, for a lot of people now everybody is completely different there is no silver bullet um you know all of those things but that's on the the assumption that someone is going to go for a psychedelic experience to try and fix something yeah whereas with my few experiences I was just doing it because I, I hadn't ever. And, um, yeah, probably the main reason. I hadn't ever. And maybe I was looking for something, but it wasn't any specific. And I certainly made sure because I, I, I was doing it a bit amateur. I, I had no trip sitter yeah, or yeah. shark yeah. watch as I yeah. refer to it and nothing like that. Um, but each one, I got something from it. Yeah. In the, uh, Self-knowledge. So Self-knowledge. Well, no, as in there was, I fixed things okay, yeah, in it yeah. and it it's interesting you you describe it because I, as as you know it's super it's so difficult to describe to yeah. especially to people who haven't ever yeah you know it's like and it, it can sound so ridiculous and it can sound so abstract yes. so airy fairy and, and and but that's kind of the only way to describe it because you're still trying to work out the way uh, out yourself the way i try the way i sort of try and understand what it does and why it does it it being the experience and why it's able to present to you an alternative perspective. That's yeah. the way I, he's putting you, you know, Plato said, give me a place to stand, I'll move the earth. I'll, yeah. I'll, move, I'll move the earth. It's like it puts, it puts, it puts your conscious on a different planet yeah. 
you're looking at your, your life, which is the planet, and you're able to shift it because you're seeing you're seeing the life from a different perspective. But Rick Doblin says this. He, oh, the, really? the guy from Maps. He he literally says, you know, that the astronauts who've been out to the moon mm. and that, that, that they look back on Earth. There's something called the overview effect when they see the yeah. whole Earth. That that and that picture of the Earth was actually when they first. Found, like they first took that photograph of the blue planet it was very profound for people very very moving but you know the astronauts that come back from space where they've seen all of life on this one orb they have a new perspective and they typically you know a lot of them have got very very involved with um, the fight against climate change things like that and rick, rick says look it's a lot cheaper than sending people off in rockets is giving them these psychedelic medicines that can take them off planet, that can give them that same perspective, that can give them the overview effect. I think it's true. So I, yeah, I mean, I tend to feel at the mo- like these days, with the, I say these days, as we've evolved and this like this information bombardment and this, oh, what's the word? You know, sensory overload that everyone's uh, bombarded with. I think it's like, it adds a layer of complexity to, well, it just makes it extremely complicated to try and understand yourself and understand your feelings and, and why you think things. I think one of the things that the psychedelic experience does, in my in my experience anyway, is it strips away all, it takes away all that complexity and, and the only thing that matter in that experience is the baseline things. What is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, what matters, what does not. And all the other rubbish is gone. Because mm. it, it's hard to we try and work out why it's why it sort of presents, you know, you talk about experiences there like this, it gives you the answer. Mm. You know, in, in insight. I think there's a huge it? amount of insight, yeah, and the, the wonderful thing is that insight, yeah. all of that yeah. insight comes from you, right? There's nobody mm. interpreting. There's nobody telling you, and of course, in the period afterwards, you can interpret and you can, you know, this integration period. I think is really important that we often talk about. And yeah, you can work with a therapist on on all of that, but really, all of it's coming from you. You are the um, teacher, you are the therapist. Um, um, my my mother described trip sitting as psychedelic midwifery, which I really actually love as a as a term because um, again, it's 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 the the birth. You know, the 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 trip sitter, the guide, the therapist isn't the one doing the work. They're really not very important, except that. They are critical to helping the person who is that journeyer, seeker, um, experiencer, helping them feel as uh, trusting and as relaxed and as, um, you know, and as and as empowered as possible, just like a great midwife or doula or whatever would do for someone who's going through the birth experience. I think there's a lot of commonality. Um, it's this it's it can be traumatic. It can be difficult it can be challenging there will be tears there might be there's a lot of emotional pain um typically in a, in a lot of journeys and experiences but you come out of the other side of that with joy and and the resulting um you know the result of that re that rebirth um is the greatest amount of, of joy i think um and certainly that's been my experience how does it how does it work then let's go back on the, onto the, the science side i suppose how does it work? Well, it's not even the science side. With the addictions, mm. how? What is the research showing with its ability to reduce people's addiction to something? Well, and the something is really interesting because we're seeing uh, across the board that it's it's not it's. Whereas historically, the therapists <clears throat> and the psychologists have 
categorized and pathologized different conditions into different boxes I can't remember there's a document I think it's called the DSM the diagnostic manual uh, that you know talks about these different conditions that exist anxiety PTSD alcoholism gambling addictions anorexia all separate uh, um, issues and yet what we're starting to see is that psychedelics can treat all of these issues whether they are um, whether they might be what you would think of as a very much um, a physiological addiction to nicotine and smoking or alcohol, but equally an ad- a, a behavioural addiction to gambling. That's some of the latest work that's that's happening right now around gambling addiction. Anorexia, OCD, these different conditions that historically have been kept apart in different boxes. S- psychedelic medicine is breaking down those um those walls between them and and suggesting that the same mechanisms of mind are involved in all of these instances that the same maladaptive pattern of thought uh, is at play and that by disrupting that pattern of thought and introducing maybe some neuroplasticity as well that we can rewrite that that programming i the analogy i always use with people is if if you were going down the mountain and skis and you were in a rut and that rut could be I want a fag I want a fag I want a fag I want to I want to drink I want to drink it might be uh I want to I want to gamble or I mustn't eat anything or I'm no good um and actually the really interesting thing about something like depression is that the mind is an amazing confirmation machine so the more <coughs> depressed you are the more likely you are to recognize in the world around you uh the the things that should should make that depression even worse like somebody looks at you funny in the shop and because you're depressed that means that they know that you're no good as a person Uh, everything becomes very sticky and and it's almost like the 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 fact that the rut exists at all means that it can deepen and deepen and deepen and the brain just reconfirms and strengthens the association uh, and and maybe even the strengthens that behavior because you're doing it all the time it becomes more habitual it becomes habitual in your thinking deeper 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 rut that you can't get out of and the and the difficult thing with a lot of um psychological conditions is that people who are happy and joyful can't understand why people other people are, are doing these behaviors why are they are thinking these ways you know because they're not stuck in that pattern of thought and for me what psilocybin represents and the other psychedelics is a fresh layer of snow and you can still choose to ski down the mountain in that same way if you want to but the power uh the liberation the freedom to say hey actually that really doesn't serve me and i don't want to go down that path anymore i'm gonna i'm gonna ski over here on this beautiful bit of land um there there is this space this mental space this mental power that comes, I think, from really deep uh, insight during the psychedelic state and that potentially the neuroplasticity. So I think in terms of the, the science piece, there is they talk about psychedelics as knocking out the default mode network. That is what it's probably the leading theory as to why they work at the moment. And the default mode network is arguably 
the ego mind, to go back to Eckhart Tolle and the way he talks about it, is the ego mind. It's the story of you. It's your story. It's, the, it's, it's also the part of the kind of resting brain state of when I'm not really thinking about anything at all. It's the system of the brain that's kind of in charge. It's me. And what psychedelics do is disrupt that. They cause the whole brain to connect in ways that it, it, there's a huge amount of disorder um, and parts of the brain that are not normally connected at all suddenly are connecting. So hence why you, you're hallucinating. Parts of the brain that, um, you know, your, your visual cortexes, if that's not the right language, but the, the visual aspects of the brain are connecting suddenly. They might even connect to the parts of the brain that deal with taste. You might be able to taste a colour. You might be able to see a sound. Synesthesia is really, really common in these experiences. So the parts of the brain that are all connecting, connecting, connecting. And The Aardvark Group, a sponsor of the podcast, brought you this show today. The Aardvark Group are a hugely experienced defence and security company who develop solutions for post-conflict zones and a complex world. They have been developing and delivering highly impactful technical solutions since 1982 through the deployment of innovative technologies, techniques, services and people. They've been saving lives and protecting people and assets against the global threat of explosive ordnance for decades. Their equipment and their products and their technologies are developed by operators for operators. They've got a huge proportion of their workforce who are ex-military and they are massive proponents of the ex-military value within the industry. They answer the needs of states, NGOs, international or regional institutions and private corporations. The Aardvark Group first became known to myself and to H.O.A. very early on when I was introduced to the CEO, David St. John Clare, who at that time was putting in significant personal effort to raise money for military charities at the height of the Afghan campaign. The Aardvark Group commits just as much energy as David within the company to support the military community, and this has been demonstrated through the Armed Forces Employee Recognition Scheme Awards. You can find out more about the Aardvark Group at aardvark.group, and you can follow them on social media. They're on Twitter, they're on Instagram, and they're on Facebook. Simply search for The Aardvark Group and you will find them. I strongly suggest you do, and they will certainly appreciate the follow and the engagement from HR fans. Aardvark.group. There's a great visualisation that Robin Carhart-Harris developed in the team at Imperial that shows kind of the resting brain state and the number of connections of different areas of the brain during that resting brain state versus the brain on psilocybin. And the brain on psilocybin is just, ah, everything's connecting. Um, they sometimes describe it as a bit like instead of the uh, the uh, orchestra, the the guy, who's the conductor of the orchestra, he's been knocked out, and the whole orchestra is just playing, and they're all playing their own little tune, and it's and there's a, there's chaos there, but there's also connection and maybe a kind of like a resetting of uh, a new order in the brain. Again, like I th I think of it as the shaking the snow globe, putting in a, a new layer of snow, getting out of the rut, the, the obsessive pattern of thought that has become maladaptive and switching that off and on again. There's so many different anal analogies that we can use. They're all just analogies for how we as human beings experience our own thought patterns and our own behavior. And that 
disorder combined with potentially the opportunity for new growth and new pathways to form in the brain which is the neuroplasticity that they're exploring right now. And there's still a lot to study. There's some amazing rat studies that show that the dendrites of the neurons are sustained in growth for at least six months after a high-dose psilocybin experience, which is amazing. And like the potential for more research around that is just in terms of neural degeneration and, and Alzheimer's and all those kinds of things, I think is really, really exciting and something we should be exploring a lot further. But that injection of of new possibilities new thinking new pathways into the brain that's what powers the the opportunity the catalyst that people have when they have a high dose experience to then fundamentally change their thinking change their lives i think they're changing the mechanisms of their mind i assume with a with a treatment addiction where there's a chemical dependency like alcoholism or i don't know smoking or something more serious like a you know uh, some uh, some drug cocaine heroin heroin um i assume then that this like a, a treatment program based around lsd or psilocybin for a let's say it's alcohol addiction that would have to come hand in hand with a you know something to treat the physiological side of it get over the chemical dependency or not how yeah. was the what was the what would a program look like like a treatment program somewhere in fact where's doing something like this now i mean they they are developing these things all over the world in, in the u.s Switzerland, Spain, you know, there's studies happening absolutely everywhere now. And there are treatment programs that are being developed in jurisdictions like Jamaica and, and you know, the Netherlands and Portugal, places <coughs> where there's there's either decriminalization or where, you know, in Oregon, like I said, they've they've set up a, a, a taxed healthcare system that is dedicated to use of psilocybin. There are, there are other states in America, Colorado, San Francisco is probably going to come along, but, but uh, Oregon is by far the most advanced. Australia and um, Australia recently rescheduled psilocybin. Um, this is really important. So, I heard this in one of your previous interviews, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, go on, so. So, so one thing I should say is that there's a big difference between the scheduling of a drug and its classification. So the class of drug relates to whether or not you or I are allowed to possess it, whether we can sell it to other people, um, and how long we'll get in prison if we do so. <clears throat> the police can take uh, substances off us um, if they are class sort of A, B, C, um, and there's different sentencing times associated with those different, uh, those different drugs. Um, but the scheduling is different. The scheduling relates to whether or not a, a licensed medical professional or a licensed regulated person in a sort of professional capacity whether they are allowed to uh, access or give somebody else the substance so uh, morphine for example heroin is a class a drug but it is a schedule two substance Uh, that is because every hospital pharmacy in the country contains morphine it is a medicine and if you have break your back you're going to need it and doctors who are regulated and, and nurses and people who've got licenses to treat others are allowed to access that, that molecule, that medicine. The problem we have is that psilocybin is not only a class A drug, uh, you're not allowed to use it, pick it, give it to anyone else, 14 years in prison for, for distributing this this element that grows naturally throughout our country and in our fields this, this thing that's in a mushroom in the fields yeah yeah i mean <laughs> professor Nutt, i think is uh he, he he's i think i've heard him say if you 
if you pick it, that's when it becomes illegal. If you bend down on the ground on all fours and eat it straight out of the ground, there's nothing that they can do. But um, <laughs> as in, the, there's no there's no illegal action that has been performed as far as I understand. Um, but yeah, with the problem we've got is that psilocybin is in Schedule One. Now, a Schedule One substance is meant to be a substance that has no known medical benefit. Uh, and a high potential for abuse. Now, <clears throat> neither of those things are true. They are categorically not true of psilocybin. And the rest of the world is starting to recognise this. Uh, we've got these old, the, 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 old, um, the old world, like Australia, Canada, America, uh, all English-speaking um, Western uh, states, they've, they've all recognised, they're all recognising that um, psilocybin uh, has huge 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 medical uh potential to heal people um interestingly in oregon the system that they've set up is not just for uh purely therapeutic use so when i was saying earlier like you know uh this medicine can help you go down into the basement and 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 see what's stinking in there what's really interesting is that a lot of people who are like you described who may be uh intrigued about their own psyche are you know, just normal people, healthy normals, we'd call them in in the studies, um, that what they're doing in in Oregon, they are allowed, anyone over the age of 21 is allowed to say, I want to go and experience this medicine. No way. Yeah, and and provided they're willing to to pay. And there's a lot of of problems with the system that they've set up over there. But, um, you know, well, for one thing, I mean, it's, you know, it's America, you have to pay for everything. Um, And they've... (laughs) Uh, the way that they've uh, set it up means that a lot of the um, the centres uh, are yeah are not very accessible. There's huge wait lists as well on some, for some of this stuff, um, but th- there's been a there's been a lot of problems around where they can actually uh, what premises they're allowed to use, and it's all based around uh, doing it in certain premises. So you couldn't, for example, have a uh, a shaman or a, uh, a guide, a trip sitter who would come to your house, for example, and do this, that would not be possible in Oregon. It's all, uh, and there are very few areas, as I understand it, in Oregon where the local, if you like, the kind of local council will allow a retreat centre to be established. There are a lot of regulations about where the retreat centres can be. And there's, there's problems. It, it's There's bound to be teething problems. But interestingly, Australia has rescheduled psilocybin and MDMA, but... In that instance, there hasn't been a single prescription. As I understand it, there's been no prescription yet. And the reason for that is that they might have rescheduled it, but they haven't actually put in place the legislative system uh, and the the model for access. One of the things that we are doing now as the PAR campaign, and we we just got back, we had a big um, uh, session this last, uh, this weekend just gone, uh, where we got Charlotte Nichols MP down to uh, a place called Medicine Festival, which is just outside Reading. Amazing, amazing uh, festival. Uh, totally sober, sober festival. No, no booze. Um, uh, amazing event, and we uh, we held a kind of uh, workshop, if you like, around what should the the model of access look like in the future for psilocybin. Because for one thing, you know, it is an interesting subject substance in that people can use it at um, these high dose levels, which is what I always talk about, because that's where the, the clinical data is. Nonetheless, lots and lots and lots and lots of people you will talk to will tell you that they are using it at a micro level. That they I've are used it at a micro level, yeah. yeah Obviously which, not over here because that would be illegal. It would be totally illegal to do that in the UK. Yeah. 
Um, and so one, you know, one of the, we we as a as an activist group right now, we are totally focused on the rescheduling of psilocybin. Now that means bringing the scheduling down from one to two, so that medical professionals can access it in the same way that they access morphine and her- uh, morphine and uh, and other um, drugs, uh, ca- cannabis uh, is actually medically available uh, in the UK. We need psilocybin to be in that same status, but. What that won't change, and we're very conscious of that, is that won't change the classification. That won't change how long you could get uh, locked up in prison for using these substances or having them in your home or giving them to anyone else. So, you know, when that rescheduling does happen, there are going to be there are going to be more challenges that will arise around access to psilocybin, which is why we call the the campaign for psilocybin access rights because we do believe that this is a a civil rights movement that this is the next. You know, it's the next wave of, of the civil rights movement. We have, we should have uh, the right to access our own consciousness in the way that we choose. One of the most interesting things that's happened in the rest of the world is uh, in Canada, where the Canadians uh, effectively have, and have had for a very long time now, the right to die. So they have a, a program for euthanasia. And this has been used by the psychedelic um, uh, uh, gang, if you like, to uh, argue if and the the line they've used is right to die right to try can you really tell me if i'm you know if i'm uh, you can tell me i'm i can kill myself uh, and that would be sponsored by the state but i cannot take this naturally grown uh, medicine and explore my own consciousness and for people who are dying of terminal illness in particular um, that's that's monstrous wow. and the canadians have got a long way by encourage by by making that very strong argument and there are people who are who there's an amazing man thomas mark hartle um who has been suffering from a, a terminal i think it's bowel cancer for many years now um but initially he was given only a, a couple of months to live uh, and he applied um to to be able to try psilocybin to relieve his end of life distress which it was very successful in doing and he's become a really big advocate for the movement over there but you know, it's it is utterly monstrous that we would deny dying people access to. Well, this the, the crazy thing about Canada is that not only are they are giving people the right to die, they're actively offering it, offering it. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen any of these cases, but they're offering it. Not even where terminal illness is concerned, where yeah. people are unhappy yeah. Yeah. because if you're, they can't if you're afford depressed. housing, depressed, yeah. and they're offering it. it, it beggars it's, belief. But yeah, we, and you're depressed, and yet they what it, you it, they, it they'll let you die, madness. but they won't let you it's try madness. this molecule that might save your life, that madness. might that might give you your joy back. And that is that is the the absolute madness of this situation that we're in. Uh, and that's why it is a civil rights movement. It's like it should be my right to to allow myself to heal my own psyche. We've got about. We have got, I say about, we've got 10 minutes left. Like, I, know, I know you've got a hard start. Sorry, but but before talk. we get on to that, I, when you talk about Oregon and and, it, and, and a psilocybin experience being being available, you know, as difficult, although in difficult circumstances, available to everyone or anyone who wants it in Oregon. If they can afford it. If they can afford it, right? <laughs> and, and, I, and that is... I, and I they like, can find I, a retreat centre like with that, enough space. I like, I like there needs to be control measures, right? But can you imagine how different for the good... The UK would be overnight, overnight, if everyone, if everyone, right, who is sound in mind or wanted to, was able to have some form of psychedelic experience as a psilocybin, tomorrow you'd be walking into a different world. 
I, I truly believe it. You'd be walking a different world Rick purely Doblin because of the insight, That's the insight it. you get. Rick Doblin says that he believes, I think it's like 2050 or something. He says he thinks we will have a spiritualized humanity. Yeah. And there are many people now also looking at the potential for psychedelics to re- Give, rebalance our relationship with nature and give us perspective that will allow us to correct the climate problem uh, in a really powerful and meaningful way. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things in the psychedelic movement is that there are a lot of people who talk about the hype and the shroom boom and all of this, you know, don't hype the medicine um, and they get sort of protective about that. And I uh, and, and people will will use the word utopian as if it's a bad thing uh, to be a utopian. I am absolutely a utopian. If a utopian means I think that the, the world of tomorrow will be better than the world of today, and it will be that way if we make this effort and we allow safe access to this medicine, we've got to steward this medicine through. It is, they are powerful. They are dangerous in the wrong hands. They, are, um, they can traumatise people. I do, I do not take any... Uh, I do not take it lightly. If uh, That's why I do the work that I do, because anybody out there, anybody listening to this who is taking SSRI antidepressants can read Robin Carhart Harris's paper on uh, escitalopram, the leading SSRI, versus psilocybin. You can read that. It's publicly available. And I'd be very surprised if, at the end of that, you still want to be continuing taking these SSRIs that have very, very profound impacts on people's lives, um, that have a whole raft of... Um, of uh, problems from things like even things like loss of libido which nobody takes seriously but has a, a massively detrimental effect not just to you but to the person you might have as a partner like again these ripple effects they're so vast uh, from these medicines and uh, anybody can read that report anybody can read that research and anybody can go out there and pick these mushrooms or access them on the black market and they can do that in a way that would be very detrimental to them, um, that might be dangerous to them. Uh, not physiologically dangerous, but psychologically, uh, these medicines can absolutely <coughs> cause harm if they're not dealt with properly. And the reason that we spend all our time and energy as a, as a campaign group lobbying the government uh, to make change and to recognize these medicines is that we want them to get ahead of it we we don't want people doing desperate things in desperate circumstances we lose something like 18 people every single day on average to suicide in this country and we shouldn't be they you know people i i believe people die because they give up hope and that these medicines absolutely even if they for whatever reason they they were not right for you i do believe that they represent hope for millions of people and that that hope alone can keep them alive but I, I believe that they should be given the opportunity to, to try this if, that, if that's what they seek to do. And they should be able to give that opportunity in safe circumstances, ideally in the kind of circumstances that we do see in the clinical trials where you have got somebody with you, somebody experienced guiding your experience, or at least guiding is probably not the right word, but at least present with you during that experience and reassuring you and allowing that experience to be as healing as it possibly could be. We've got, it's got to be safe. It's got to be regulated. That's why I don't believe in just widespread decriminalization right here and now. I want the rescheduling. I want the medical access. And then we'll have to talk about everything else that follows from that. Um, but, you know, the more people that go through this treat these treatments, the more our humanity, our, our society is going to wake up to what the potential is. And I, I really do believe it, it is that spiritualized humanity. And it is... 
yeah, it's the it's the thing that gives me hope for the future. What's next on the step for the campaign? What's what's the next target? What are you trying to achieve in the short term? Yeah, so um, we've just got back from this festival where we've 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 persuaded five hundred people to sign uh postcards letters to their mps that we're posting sober? yeah they were all sober. every <laughs> single one of them was sober um and uh so we you know we're continuing to to do that work and the, and the kind of lobbying work on the more public side though we've got a we've got an event we're running for magic mushroom day in uh september 20th of september where's that, um, Where that? we're going to be held we're ho- holding an art auction we haven't actually launched the tickets yet this is uh, first time i'm talking about it but we're holding an art auction in soho um, and the aim is to raise money for what we are calling Project Croydon, which does sound like something from Only Fools and Horses, <laughs> um, which I think is the appeal because, um, yeah, we're a bunch of silly gang, really. But uh, Project Croydon is our attempt at uh, hustling Chris Philp. Chris Philp is the Home Office Minister who is personally responsible for the rescheduling of psilocybin. All he needs to do is sign a statutory instrument that uh, Crispin Blunt and Charlotte uh, Nichols MP and and Jeff Smith and the other MPs that we work with uh, at the CDPRG, that they have written this thing. He just needs to sign it. Now... This is to bring it into Schedule 2, right? Just to bring it into Schedule 2, yeah. Um, It can happen very easily. Uh, And what we are asking him to do is review the evidence. Do their flipping jobs at the home office rather than kicking the can down the road and sort of suggesting oh well maybe we'll wait for the fda in america to to approve this that's not good enough i thought we took back control like uh, not that i not that i was voting for that but um you know that it is it is astonishing that that the home office is just acting like this isn't really happening although they also at the same time seem to know that this is coming because it will come in america anyway so um, what's stopping him right now then suella braverman probably um and inertia it this the stigma has dramatically decreased in the last year why why suella what why? there's a perception amongst some very 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 out of touch conservative mps like suella um, who has no idea what the majority of the country think. Uh, there's this perception that uh, they need to be tough on drugs and w- without really understanding what anything about what psych- psychedelic medicines represent for our country in terms of potential. The great majority of the British public and the majority of Conservative voters too believe that psilocybin should be rescheduled. It's a, a straightforward. The data points are all there. It's a and it, in, it, increase, it increases when you tell them, uh, hey, this is already happening in, in Canada. We haven't even done the research yet that says, hey, this has already happened in Australia, but you can, you can bet your bottom dollar that's going to increase it even further. More than sort of, like around 70% of people believe this should be rescheduled. It is a no-brainer. I mean, my, there is nothing to stand in the way of the rescheduling other than people who don't understand science and, and who are not interested in science. And unfortunately, that is the, the case with our Home Secretary at the moment. Uh, she's standing in the way of progress. She's standing in the way of science. And what we need is Chris Philp to really own this. Um, we want to put more pressure on him personally. We want to make it an election issue for him in South Croydon. That is his constituency. And so we've decided that we want to put some effort into on the ground kind of activism. Rather than just talking about this stuff, 
we're going to go and hit the streets of South Croydon with leaflets. Uh, we're hoping to get some poster sites, putting things through people's what letters. What day is this? 21st September? No, uh, we're not going to be doing it then. We're ra- raising some money then. Oh. And the, the chances are that we will probably activate in February next year. So there's plenty of time to kind of get involved and... You know, we need as many literal foot soldiers as we can get. Um, we really want to make some noise in, in, in South Croydon, some noise that the London media, maybe even the national media will pay attention to because it's a bit of a weird thing to do. But we like to think if we can make the residents, the constituents of South Croydon, the most informed people in the country as to why, you know, Silas Ivan holds this promise and, and tell them that it is their minister that is holding this back, that we might get, you know... I like the idea of uh, some BBC Vox Pops of a little old ladies coming out of Croydon Station saying, I didn't know anything about this psilocybin stuff, but, you know, these nice people have given me this leaflet and they've told me, and you know what, now I'm going to go down to Chris Phillips' constituency surgery and I'm going to ask him, why aren't you doing this? Because my grandson needs this and my daughter needs this and, you know, I, I, we want to put a bit more pressure on it because now the, it's not a case of if, it's a case of when, and when might still be very far down the line and we'll lose a lot of people in the meantime, not just to depression and to suicide, but to alcoholism and to tobacco addiction and to everything else that is uh, holding us back. So we believe if we can move all of this forward by just one month, that will be people people's lives saved and that matters. So it's the thing that yeah gets us out uh, campaigning. And hopefully will motivate people to to get involved and to and to come and just hit the streets of South Croydon with us with some leaflets and having some conversations and let's uh, drive that sense of urgency and maybe get Chris to realise that he wants to stand on the right side of history. If he wants to have any legacy at all, he will not let the next government make this change. He will do it. He will sign it and he will be proud of himself for doing it. How can people support you aren't in Croydon? Um, they can come to Croydon for one thing they can fund us they can share our materials and um, they can come like all they need to do is sign up on our website uh, salasyben.co.uk when you say sign up so what are they going to do go to the website just go to the website and join our newsletter because the other thing is that we're we're coming up with stuff all the time. They can they can help us. They can lend their skills. Um, we've it's amazing, really. I, I've been really totally blessed in that. Just when we've needed an accountant, an accountant has appeared. Just when we've needed a designer, a designer has appeared, and people have said, "Hey, I can do that. I've got the skills to do that." And they've lent in, and every one of us is a volunteer, and we give our time freely and our and our energy. I've got one, um, you know, amazing woman who is uh, like hand printing t-shirts that we've been selling uh, that we're selling at these festivals that are, again raising money for leaflets and postcards and stamps and things that we can use then to get people to lobby their MPs. Can you buy the t-shirts online? You can buy the t-shirts online. Soon you're going to be able to buy some of the other merchandise as well. Um, you, we've got letters. Um, if you go to the website, so we've got uh, silasyben.co.uk if that's easier to remember or if you can't spell that, par.global, P-A-R dot global par dot global and that will you'll you can sign up to the newsletter where we can communicate what we're doing and how to get involved um you can you can sign up for all our social media you can donate you can buy stuff from the shop um we've only been we've only been doing this for a year literally a year last week it's been since we kind of formally have you launched. got any uh, method of collecting response uh, like uh 
expressions of interest, shall we say, from people who are suffering from, let's say, PTSD. Yes, yes. For saying, hey, I'm interested. Yeah. I'd like to explore treatment for this as and when it's available. Yes. Please, can you um, help? There's a, at, the, at the moment, there's a button that says, tell us your story. We're probably going to change that slightly so that we're going to ask people for, um, if they've experienced psilocybin already and it's helped them uh, to, to share that with us so that we can maybe connect them to media if they're interested in talking to media we, we have quite a lot of requests from places like bbc gloucestershire and we need to find somebody in gloucestershire who has experienced the medicine who wants to talk about it but <clears throat> equally actually what we're finding now is the media are often coming to us and asking i want to talk to somebody who hasn't been able to experience the medicine who wants to for their depression for their ptsd for their cluster headaches whatever it might be because there's a lot of different use cases um, you know, and, and actually we're, we're going to start trying to collect testimonies from people who might be willing to talk to um, the media about the fact that they haven't been able to experience this medicine and they really, really want to. And that's great because that's, again, helping us drive the sense of urgency and not just sitting back and waiting for it to happen. It will happen. There is hope for humanity. These medicines are going to have their renaissance um, and hopefully we'll try and make sure that our politicians are as informed as possible to make sure that that can happen safely and freely and so that people aren't having situations like they are with ketamine clinics right now that are, you know, uh, in some cases in the UK, charging £10,000 and having waiting lists uh, oh lasting many years. You know, it, we believe in access and equitable access for the people who want and need this. So um, we, we need to steward this through properly It'll happen anyway, but we want it to happen well. And we want, actually, the UK to lead the world in, in this psychedelic uh, re renaissance, revolution, maybe. Last question. How do people connect with you or follow you? Par.global. Um, the website is the best place because it's got the, all of the social media links. We're on Instagram, on Twitter, we're on uh, Facebook, we're on all of those places. Um, but, yeah, and there's a contact form, so they can fill that in if they want to volunteer their time and energy we meet every week as a, um, we have a weekly status meeting, a little, uh, our band of volunteers, and we talk about what we could do. All ideas welcome anyone who's got the energy to do stuff. It's really a case of come and join us and make it happen. Good. I really enjoyed this chat. Thank you for the, thank you for what you're doing with it. I really, I really thank believe you. in it. And um, I want to sign up on the website. I want to keep in touch yeah. and uh, try and get involved in Croydon when it yeah, launches why not? next year. 100%. We're going to have fun. I think we're going to go down there and, and yeah. put letter, you know, put leaflets through the letterboxes and kind of play the politicians at their own game. This is what they, this is what they do to influence us is they put leaflets through letterboxes and tell them, tell us vote for them, vote for them. Well, you know, we're going to try and do something similar. Um, and maybe it'll even be sooner if they pull an election, maybe we'll go down on those election days and, and just just put a little bit more pressure on. Uh, we want him to know that we're watching him and that he needs to do something. Cool. Thank you. And good luck. That's it. If you enjoyed this episode, why not become a H-Hour patron? H-Hour patrons get exclusive access to premium content. There are private interviews with previous guests and with this guest that nobody will see except for the H-Hour patrons. So before this podcast was recorded, I recorded an exclusive Q&A, a shorter interview structured around eight questions. All the questions were chosen by patrons beforehand and that interview is online now for patrons. That happens every time. Patrons also get access to all of the episodes before anyone else. They get advanced viewing of the episodes and you also get other perks and bonuses all of the information is on charliecharlie1.com just hit the menu item 
become a patron. It'll show you everything there, including access to the H-Hour Discord community and private patron-only channels on there. So go to charliecharlie1.com and hit the menu item, become a patron. Easy peasy. Thank you for being a supporter. Subscribe to the channel and I will catch you on the next episode.